All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Essay Voice podcast. My name is Leighton. I'm one of the producers and hosts here, and I'm joined by one of our new hosts, Ellie. Ellie, welcome back to the podcast. Great to have you on again. Great. Hi, Leighton. Thank you. Awesome. I know we got a cool episode in store today. Um, we're going to be talking a whole about holistic health approaches and how people can make smarter choices when we're snacking, when we're eating, uh, making changes to our diet. And I'm excited to talk to you about this because I know you come from a deep area of expertise and there just seems to be huge lack of knowledge amongst even the student population of how we can be healthier in our daily lives. So let's get into it, Ellie. What, what do you have for us today? Yeah. Yeah, no problem. So I'm a registered holistic nutritionist. I'm a health coach. I've been doing this for 20 some years. And one of the things that I see quite commonly that I try to get people to change their thinking around is this all or nothing idea. Um, like it's really hard to incorporate just smaller, healthier behaviors and they want to do a boot camp, or they want to do a detox or they want to do a fast or, you know, so so this idea that you can be healthier, and it's really important to actually keep an eye on health, and, but you don't have to sacrifice fun, you don't have to sacrifice indulgences in order to be healthy, um, but just keeping a bigger kind of bird's eye view on our health, not just for us, but kind of even for a collective and for all of us, um, is, an, is an important approach, I think. So. So that's kind of what, what I try to encourage people to do just by thinking a little bit differently about that. Yeah. Um, do you think that the all or nothing approach is what leads to a lot of people failing? I know you kind of have to take it one step at a time, but do you think people get too in over their heads by trying to do everything in the first five, six weeks and that's why they fail? Yeah, Should they take a step-by-step -step approach? Yeah. yeah, I think for the vast majority of people, the all or nothing or the, you know, the six-week um, reset or detox. Now, I do something like that in my practice. I have a 40-day reset that I do with clients, but I want to make sure that they're doing it for the right reasons. And that's when people have kind of serious health problems that we need to get all inflammatory foods out. It's it's not a weight loss thing. It's not a health reset thing um, or a mental reset. It, it is in a way, but I want to make sure that people are approaching it in the right way because otherwise you're absolutely right people fail and people still fail because I still have people even though I try to vet them come into my practice and want to do a 40 day and I take them through a 40 day and then a year later they call me up and say, I want to do another 40 day I felt so good afterwards and I'm like well there was a whole bunch of follow-up that, that didn't happen um, after that 40 days where you try to incorporate those behaviors into your daily life but it can't be the all-or-nothing thing because it, it just doesn't work you can't change all those behaviors at once it goes completely against the grain of human psychology so you know change I like to say change is really just a series of moments where you've made a different choice it's the consistency of those smaller choices on a day-by-day -day basis that actually leads to big change in the long run, right? But trying to do it all at once, it's overwhelming and we just, it's not sustainable and we can't keep it up and most people um, just don't. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. It just becomes too much of too much, too overwhelming, I guess is what I want to say. When you try to do everything at once, you got to start with your diet make small changes, then you add the exercise, and then it kind of becomes a habit. I know, I think you obviously know the saying. Yeah, it takes, everyone can uh, do something for six weeks. Exactly, right? exactly, everybody can. But it takes, I think, 70 days for the human mind to make a habit, form a habit. So you gotta start small. You can't just jump right in or, or, you, or you fail. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. And that habit formation is different depending on what it is you're trying to form a habit around, which is interesting. Absolutely. And that's something I learned recently. If you're trying to form an exercise habit. It actually takes um, almost a year, just, just under a year to actually form an exercise habit. Really? So it, it's different depending on the habit. Um, and how much resistance there is to the habit and, you know, previous psychological experiences and life experiences, all, they all have an impact in that sort of thing. So people just really need to give themselves a break about that. There's a lot of guilt around it too. They, they think that I just can't do it and I'm weak and that that's not the case. Change is really hard and you just have to take it a little bit of time and then celebrate every success. Yeah. And, and the, the hardest thing to do is to start. But once you start, you can keep building on d those daily successes. But yeah. like I said, you just got to do it. You just got to get it going. And if your point proves right, a year to make an exercise habit, then that is a huge time commitment mentally uh, and strength-wise for somebody to do. It's, it's a big deal. Yeah. And one of the things I like to point out is, is that we often think it has to be, um, we have this preconceived notion of what it has to be. So if we're talking about exercise, um, we think we have to go to the gym every day for an hour and you don't, you know, so even just taking the stairs, like we were talking about this, taking the stairs at school. So often when I had classes on fourth floor, I would take the stairs up to the fourth floor. And sometimes I'd take them as far as I could just, just to get my heart rate pumping because I hadn't got a chance to go to the gym that day or, you know, for whatever reason, rather than taking the elevator. And that is part of the mindset of creating that movement habit, not even an exercise habit, but um, some intention to get your heart up and you get your lungs pumping and just to get some blood flowing by the time you get to the top of four stories you're huffing and puffing but it, you feel good right and then your mind is engaged and there's blood flowing to your brain and you're ready to learn rather than piling into the elevator um, chances are you're probably going to get to the fourth floor quicker taking the stairs than you would in the elevator anyway yeah no kidding yeah, no kidding. Especially with uh, how many people are trying to cram on there at the college. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah we probably won't be able to do that at all in the next year, right? Because right. we'll have to social distance. Everyone will have to take the stairs. <laughs> yeah, I think so, um, for sure. So, um, Ellie, walk me through some of the processes and, and um, methods you work with clients on how to get them in um, an exercise habit and a correct state of mind to kind of stick to, to their personal life changes. Yeah. So it depends on the person, right? So if it's an exercise habit, it might be, like I said, the 15 minute workout. So in between classes, I was going to the gym whenever I could carve out time. And I actually scheduled that right into my phone. So when I'm, that's what I use as my calendar is in my, in my calendar in my phone. So I put my exercise, my workouts right in my phone and make it like it's an appointment or like it's a class, like it's something I, I have to do. Um, even better if you're meeting someone there, right? That's a great hack is have someone to work out with. And there was someone from, I think, um, fitness and health promotions last semester that was doing that. Do you remember hearing about that? I she know, was yeah. doing the gym buddy program. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, Which is they were running personalized uh, personal training sessions. Yeah, yeah, and that's perfect. Take advantage of that sort of thing because having an appointment, especially with someone else that you have to keep, is a great way to start building the habit. Because once you start getting some motivation, you start getting some results, and you start seeing a difference, and not just looking at the scale if someone's trying to lose weight that's really not a great motivation i've never found that to be motivating for myself or my clients a fitness goal is actually a lot more effective 
So working on strength or working on how quick you can do a 500 meter row or um, you know, anything that's more fitness based rather than weight loss based um, tends to be more motivating because you can see those changes more easily. The scale lies. You could be adding muscle mass and losing fat mass and your hydration changes the scale. So it doesn't really show you what's truly happening in your body. Um, and then people get discouraged and they give up. And that's the biggest thing. And the consistency and recognizing that it is a long-term process. I mean, it takes quite a bit of time and effort to even lose one pound if we're talking about weight loss. Like that's 3,500 calories. If you have a 500 calorie deficit a day, which is hard to maintain that kind of deficit, it's still going to take you a week to lose one pound. Um, and that's if everything is working properly. So people get this idea that they should start, they should start seeing some kind of result like that way faster than they can physiologically. So I encourage people to just forget about that. Um, don't look at that at all. Focus on how you feel. Focus on how you're sleeping. Focus on the other benefits. And when you focus on those benefits, it increases the motivation to want to do it. And that's the key, right? Because like, we can't just create motivation um, through our own will. It, it's, it's, we kind of wait for it to hit us, right? But creating motivation comes by paying attention to what you're getting out of it and, and how it feels. And then you're motivated to do more. So that, those, that's a, um, a point that I make for my clients all the time. And when you're trying to create those habits, is look for where it's working. Yeah, that answer stick, your question? yeah, it does. Absolutely. Stick with what's working and, and, and don't stick with what's not. Um, yeah. So my next question for you is how, how um, careful do you have to be when um, people come to you and they want to try, you know, a fad, they want to try the Atkins diet or they want to try intermittent fasting or how keto. often do you, <laughs> keto, exactly. And that's been a huge in the last couple yeah. of years as well. But how, how do those yeah. work for people and um, what's your suggestion to people who are on those right now? Are, if they work for them, stick with it or should yeah. they try something else? Well, it depends. That's actually a, that's a whole other podcast, but okay. let, me talk, let me see if I can answer it briefly. Um, I don't discourage people from extremes when extremes are done properly. If you're going to climb a mountain, it's extreme but the payoff is huge. So if I'm not one of those people that says never ever do something extreme, but you have to recognize what you're doing and how you're doing it and doing it in the healthiest way possible. So people that are eating quote unquote dirty keto, um, that's what I would discourage and doing it without the proper foundation and the proper help. That's what I would discourage. So if someone comes to me and they want to do keto, I say, okay, well, do you know how to count calories? Do you know how to count protein grams? Do you know what your protein requirements are a day? Do you know how to count, count fat grams? Do you know how to measure your food? And have you been doing that consistently for three to six months? Can you eyeball a plate and kind of know what your macronutrients are? Because if not, you're not going to be able to do keto. It's, in ter it's terribly intense. You have to really be paying attention. And there's really only some, there's a handful of really good reasons to do it. Um, but most, weight loss isn't one of them, by the way. Um, balancing blood sugar, preventing diabetes, uh, neurological conditions, getting your body adapted to burning fat. Yeah, that's a reason, but the weight loss won't stick because most people cannot eat keto consistently, sustainably for a long period of time. There are some people that need to and should um, that are obese, you know, that are really, really struggling with food addiction because keto can really level that stuff out for them. 
but that's a very small percentage of the population. The vast majority of people that are taking on an extreme diet like keto or Atkins or something like that are doing it wrong. Um, and they're doing it unhealthily and they're probably going to gain all that weight back and more and feel wretched. Um, so you need help. If you're going to engage in something like that, I would say don't until you actually talk to a professional and someone that knows what they're doing. And I'll tell you this story because it's, it's kind of concerning, but also enlightening. I have a friend who recently suffered a heart attack um, and his cardiologist told him to eat keto. So there is a lot of science behind keto and there are, and there are doctors and surgeons and cardiologists recommending keto. But when I heard that, I was kind of livid because this, this guy, this friend of mine, he drinks two cans of Coke a day. He's a smoker. He hates vegetables. He can't do keto in any kind of healthy way. And for a cardiologist to just give him that advice, I think was very short-sighted and very bad advice. Um, so, but that's the kind of thing, unfortunately, that people, people are getting that kind of advice and they're hearing all of these opinions. I mean, one dietitian or, or doctor might say, no, no, that's horrible. It's not, not healthy. And then here's a cardiologist telling people, yes, you should do it. So there's so much misinformation floating around. You really have to educate yourself and get professional help, um, when it comes to, to this kind of extreme behaviors. Yeah, sounds like he was kind of diagnosing and treating the symptoms, not the causes there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that that's a good point. I think definitely people need to do uh do do what you recommended. Talk to talk to professionals, but obviously um if your root causes are are pop and cigarettes every single day, then maybe those need to go first than your diet. That's correct. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You have to start with where someone is at. And starting at keto is hardly ever the place. Um, like I said, if I have clients that have been eating paleo, which is clean eating, um, ancestral eating, they're eating meat and vegetables, and they're not eating processed foods, and they've been doing that for a while, and then they want to try six weeks of keto, sure, they know what they're doing. They, mm -hmm. they can do six weeks of keto healthily. And they can reset their metabolism and they can get the benefits of keto. But then I want them to transition back to paleo when they're done. Yeah. Um, so that's the way I approach that sort of extreme eating, if you will. And there are, there are benefits to that because it does, it does teach people about their body. Um, and it does change physiology for the better most of the time. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think everybody should try it once in their life. Just so you know and you understand your body a little bit better and you know what it can and cannot do. Um, yeah. But I think self-information um, on your body and the processes that work for you is just as important as finding the right diet. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Everything is self-exploration. Uh, one, uh, one man's food is another man's poison, they say. Um, and you really don't know how, like some people do not respond well to keto. And there's a lot of genetics involved in that. There's a lot of genetics involved in chronic disease too. We were talking about this earlier. And so I, let me bring this up. So 84% of chronic disease risk isn't genetic. Um, it's environmental and behavioral. So, it, so another way to say it is genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. 
So there's so much we can do with that within our genetics just by choosing different behaviors and different diet and, and our lifestyle kind of honed in and out how our body responds best. And by the way, that can change through the life cycle. So what's best for you when you're in your 20s is not necessarily going to be what's best for you in your 30s and 40s and 50s. You have to tweak it to a certain degree. Um, but knowing your body and getting to know your body as soon as possible always works in your benefit. Recognizing how your body responds to carbohydrates. How does your body respond to processed foods? How does it respond to alcohol? How does it respond to drugs? Knowing these things about yourself is really important self-knowledge that will carry you through your entire lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. Those are some great points. And I'm glad that you bring those up because like we said at the beginning of this podcast, there's just there's almost too much information out there. Um, it's an overload. It's a sensory overload for people and mm -hmm. people don't really know mm -hmm. which way to go. So it, it's super important to keep finding, keep exploring. And once you find something that works for you to keep on going down that path. But like I said, um, tons of misinformation out there. So it's important to kind of have these conversations and uh, we don't have enough of them. Oh, I totally society. agree. Yeah. yeah. And we tend to do that. We try to find the definitive answer. Um, and then we especially do this in nutritional science and it's especially impossible in nutritional science because there's so many variability, there's so much variability and there's so many factors and there's so much um, individualism in how we respond to different foods. So, so to point blank say that saturated fats are bad for you um, is just misguided because it's not necessarily bad for you. Yes, it might be bad for one person depending on their genetics, and it might be really good for someone else depending on their genetics and also other lifestyle factors and their stress level and their and this, the sleep that they get um, and other dietary factors. So to say for sure that this is the right way, um, I think it's very misguided. We have to be more open-minded when it comes to especially nutritional science and take the the philosophy, like you were saying, or the approach of experiment, get to know yourself um, and see what works for you, because it's really the only way um, you can't trust the experts, because every expert has a different opinion, and you could find an expert to support any opinion you want to hold. This is especially the case in veganism versus uh, meat eating, um, and that's a hugely debated topic right now in nutritional science, right? And yeah. the food policy is even being formed around this. And it's, it, again, totally misguided, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, lots of misinformation, like I said, that's out there on those topics. And uh, you just got to mm -hmm. find what works for you and not shove it in people's throats. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be yeah, obnoxious That's about totally it, true. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the other points that we were talking about was substituting some unhealthy things for some healthier things. Um, so I believe that people should have indulgences, healthy indulgences. I don't want people to, you know, live their life in a box and, and never indulge. I, you know, I drink alcohol, I eat dark chocolate, I have treats, um, but I do it in a kind of a responsible way. And I keep an eye on my overall health, uh, because psychological health, you know, having an indulgence is good for your psychological health. But too much indulgence creates chronic disease. And the whole idea behind preventing chronic disease, I think, is an, is an important overarching element of this conversation. I mean, chronic disease is slated to cause or to cost $47 trillion by 2030 globally. Wow. $47 trillion. Yeah. Um, 
So the costs of chronic disease that are mostly preventable, right? 84% of those chronic diseases are preventable. This is according to a 2016 study, by the way. Um, if we can prevent a lot of those diseases, just think of what we're doing globally to, to help the, in, the entire earth, all of mankind, right? For just taking care of ourselves, right? The thing that we can do, we're always looking for what can we do um, individually to help the collective. Well, this is one of the things we can do. We can help prevent chronic disease in, our, in ourselves. And diabetes is a huge one. Um, the American Diabetes Association predicts that diabetes, it costs them $14,000 a year to treat one diabetic. Wow. So if you're diagnosed with diabetes, type 2 diabetes at age 40, and you live to be 80, that's about $500,000. And our Canadian stats, I don't have them, unfortunately, they're pretty similar, right? I mean, cost-wise, $14,000, probably a little more. Obviously, in Canadian dollars, it's going to be more than, you know, half a million bucks um, just to treat your diabetes that you could have prevented by eating better and exercising consistently. And that doesn't mean, you know, being crazy about it. It just means thinking about it and maybe choosing a healthier choice when you have the options. Yeah, and so, one of the things that we, we were talking about in our, in our, in our pre-interview chat here was just the availability of healthy foods to people in lower income situations. Oh. So. Yes. It's really sad when you see a two liter of Pepsi for 99 cents and a bag of milk is yeah. 4.99. You know, oh. apples are six bucks a pound in some places. Broccoli, yeah. cauliflower is all five bucks a head. Try so, organic. Exactly. Yeah. Income inequality. Me. Yeah. It's yeah. a huge barrier to healthy eating. It absolutely is. I'm, I'm hopeful that that's starting to get better. Um, and people are now, it's amazing. People are learning to grow their own food, right? Because of this whole COVID situation. The idea of food security is becoming more and more important. And fortunately, living in Kingston, we have um, a really good culture of that. A lot of organic farmers, there's farmer's markets, food is more available for us here. But in other parts of the world, you're absolutely right. There are these food deserts where people don't even have access to healthy vegetables and food. Um, and that becomes part of, part of this discussion is how do we change that? And how do we, and not just through charity either, because just doing it through charity, um, it's, not, it's not the same. So it's kind of like a Band-Aid situation of, of just having, I mean, Loving Spoonful is an amazing organization that, that um, donates a lot of food and they get a lot of donations from local farmers and a lot of the food is even organic. So yes, those are temporary solutions and food banks are temporary solutions, um, but there's not enough. We have to be able to create food security for everyone and being able to get the foods, even foods that are relevant to their culture, healthy foods relevant to culture, those often are missing. Um, you know, we're not eating fermented foods anymore. Most cultures had some kind of fermented foods in their diets and we're so far away from what we knew ancestrally and what each culture kind of did to take care of ourselves. And we're eating these processed fast foods and it's majorly contributing to all these chronic diseases. That whole system has to change. You're absolutely right. The things that we can do individually is we can grow our own food. Um, if, if at all possible, even a container 
your garden in an apartment. I mean, you can have a tomato plant, you can have some fresh herbs, you can do some things even with a very small scale. You can get involved in community supported agriculture and community gardens. Those are available in, in most communities. Um, at least in Canada, I believe we, we do have more of that happening. Rooftop gardening. Um, one of the courses that I did, it's an elective through the college last year, my online elective was the, the local food system. Um, and the text that went along with that was called Locavore, written by a woman in Toronto. It's an amazing book. And it talks about exactly these issues of how to get healthy, unprocessed foods back into the hands of everyone. So it has to become part of the conversation. You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. Not only a part of the conversation, Ellie, but it needs to become fundamental. We need to start teaching younger people how to do this so that they are armed with the skills to feed themselves coming out of Absolutely. school. Not You can't start when you're 40. You need to start yeah. when you're 14. Yeah. 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 Just, Why aren't just, we teaching gardening? Exactly. Nine, right? Why aren't we teaching yeah. proper nutrition and, and even financial literacy, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, those are completely different yeah. podcasts. We say we I do. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could cut for hours. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> there are some people doing that. There are. And that, that's happening in small bubbles, but it is happening. I have a friend that started um, started a school, Creeford Academy, and that's the kind of stuff that they teach their kids. So it's it's great. Yeah. And it's it's so essential, too, just to have that information, to be armed with it, to, to be able to live your life yeah. if you ever need to... Uh, you know, feed your family, feed yourself or go off grid and all of the above. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's more of an interesting push towards that in this younger generation. I'm, I'm hoping that that comes, um, wanting to be more sustainable, wanting to be more self-sufficient, wanting to have that food security. Um, I think we're going in the right direction with that, but it has to start with the individual. We have to want it. We have to think about it. Um, and we have to we have to make different choices based on on those values, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I I think it's so important, like I said, and uh, it's a shame that it's not more widely accepted here in North American culture. Um, but our society isn't built that way. It's built to uh, built to consume and consume and consume some more, and then you know people aren't sustainable with their livelihood anymore when it comes to preparing, growing, eating their own foods. And, and like you said, I do think yeah, there well, is a bit easier, more what's easier, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's that's so easy. easy to go through the drive-thru. It's so, so easy. easy. Well, you got even the apps and, now. You and you can Uber get a eats. full day's calories in one meal. Exactly. Oh, that, yeah. You right even, to your door. You yeah, don't right even have to, to leave your house. Yeah. A couple clicks and boom, <laughs> 4,000 calories show up. There you go. Yeah. Here's an idea for us. A budding entrepreneur start a food delivery service for healthy, unprocessed organic food. You'll make millions. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> Depends where they can get it from. I don't know how many places are making or delivering or all that type of food, but I think uh, we need more. Oh, well, you just well. have to. Yeah, you just got to find yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, people, if someone you know figured out how to make it, I have friends that do that that make organic food and do home delivery but they do it on a small scale so yeah. we we need it as a, a huge franchise to compete with with all the other processed food options yeah i agree got to get it out there and once it's out there it will take to market hopefully right that's right yeah so a couple of the things that we we talked about earlier that i just wanted to make sure we kind of covered briefly 
was the, the choices, the things that I do that I encourage clients to do when it comes to nutrition that are kind of easy, easy substitutions, you know, like if you're, if you want pizza, um, you can, you can make healthy pizza. That's not that hard to do. It's not like pizza can't be a healthy food if you make it with really good quality ingredients. So if you get, I mean, there's an organic spelt farm out here in Inverary and their spelt is sold all over the city and all, you know, all over the King, Kingston countryside. You can buy some organic spelt, make an organic spelt pizza crust, get some good quality tomato sauce, um, get some local cheese and some herbs and some spices and some mushrooms and some veggies. And that's actually not a bad meal. There's, you know, you're getting good quality nutrients in that. And that would be a great hack. And it's also a fun thing to do, right? You can actually make it like a pizza party night where everyone makes their own healthy pizzas. So it's shifting the mentality around how do we approach food? And if you're going to drink, I mean, I drink, I usually drink tequila or I drink beer. And if I drink beer, it's organic beer. That's the choice that I make. And you can add like fresh lime juice to that and Himalayan crystal salt. A friend of mine um, introduced me to this amazing drink and it's beer juice is a full lime and you rim a glass with Himalayan crystal salt and you put the lime and the beer in it. And oh, it's delicious. It's a fantastic. Whole like when it's a whole lime, the juice of oh. a whole lime. Yeah. Yeah. It's very refreshing and lots of electrolytes lots of minerals in that. Um, so yeah, I mean, just choosing those different things, dark chocolate versus a Mars bar. Right. You know, if you're looking at the, if I'm going to indulge in something, I want to indulge in the healthiest version of it I can. I really want to enjoy it. So I would rather have a small amount of organic dark chocolate than a Snickers bar or an O'Henry bar or something, right? So yeah. you're still getting the indulgence, but you're getting phytonutrients and you're not getting as much sugar. And um, it, it, that's not an unhealthy food. And we know the benefits, the health benefits of chocolate, but you're not, you can't, you're not going to get that out of a Mars bar. No, I, I agree right? with you. And, and on that point, I think yeah. uh, you might know this statistic, but um, they've done studies on diets. Um, and if you're craving something psychologically, let's say you're craving salt and vinegar chips or whatever, or dark or chocolate, yeah. they say your body only needs about a third of what you're regularly consuming to satisfy that craving. And the rest is just, uh, is just you wanting to eat the more, more of it. So let's say you wanted, yeah. like I said, a, like you said, that um, example of chocolate, you don't need a whole Snickers bar to yeah. satisfy your psychological craving. You only need a couple of bites. Yeah. Now, where people get into trouble with that is that food is being engineered to be more and more addictive. That whole lace thing that you can't eat just one, that's a threat. <laughs> right? yeah. They do that on purpose. There is a whole industry of, of food engineering to make it so you don't stop. Even though you might be satisfied by that craving, your brain, the part of your brain takes over and makes you eat more of that than you actually need. So it's I agree with you 100%. Having the awareness that I probably don't need this. And now I actually encourage people to get a little angry um, at the fact that food engineers are doing this to you to make you eat more just so you will buy more. And they don't care about the health impacts of that at all. You can use it kind of as motivation to say, no, I'm not doing it. Um, you're not going to win. Um, I'm not going to eat the rest of this. I'll save it and eat the rest of it later. Or I'll give it away or I'll throw it away. Right? 
um, because it's actually better off in the garbage than it is in your body. Don't use your body as a garbage disposal. Yeah, great point. And, and the next point that I'm sure you know about is portion sizing. Um, mm. You know, uh, people only need about a half or, or two thirds of what they're putting on their plate, especially in fast food servings. Uh, your body oh. doesn't need doesn't need and it can't digest all that crap. So you, right. should, you shouldn't be eating 4000 calories worth of garbage. No, it's really hard. That's just one of the things that again, this could be another podcast because I do specialize in food addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and I help people recognize that, that is not their fault. Even though your body doesn't need it, um, there there is this very real compulsion to eat more of it once you started eating it because the brain gets hijacked. Um, and I have these 10 steps to overcoming food hijacking to help people learn about that and to be able to overcome it. Um, but you're absolutely right. Our portions are crazy, especially in North America, right? You go to other countries, um, the sizes of portions are actually significantly smaller in the same restaurants than they are. Um, in North America. And, you know, the U.S. is worse for us for this than Canada is, but we're right on their heels. Um, so the big gulp, right? Like the, I mean, get a grip. Have you ever been to um, the works? <laughs> Have you seen the, the chocolate milkshake? Oh, I haven't. I'm the not chocolate a... milkshake at the works. Is oh. it gross? Oh, it, it comes in one of those two cup measuring cups. Like, like a glass measuring cup. Oh, two cups, four cups. I think it's a four cup measuring. It's insane. I'd have to go and look now. But I had a boyfriend we used to eat there and it would just, it would just turn my stomach. As soon as they would bring that thing down and just sit on the table, clunk, clunk, here's your milkshake. I was like, that, that's like 6,000 calories in a, yeah. in a glass. And you're going to drink, and you're going to eat a burger and fries on top uh. of that. Like, that's the culture that we're in, right? Like that's one of the ways that we've figured out how to reward ourselves um and it's not a reward it's a punishment it's it's really not doing us any favors yes it tastes good and that's about it yeah um it works a lot like a drug in that way where it's it's really not doing anything beneficial for us at all it only feels good for a minute you're doing it and then it's just gross and then it's just gross the second you swallow it yes. and your body has to digest it <laughs> but and you just feel yeah. so horrible yeah. afterwards right i agree i agree this is uh yeah this is good stuff I, I love these kind of conversations because not everybody is fully aware of it so this is this is great thanks for bringing this to our us attention yeah, um my did, you, did you have anything else to add or did we kind of cover your checklist there i think we covered everything that i wanted to talk about um, the, the point I just want to leave with is this idea of minimizing the damage um, versus all or nothing. So if you're going to have an indulgence, just take care of yourself the next day, the day before. If you're going to go out drinking, um, then make sure you're getting lots of electrolytes. Make sure you're replenishing water because chronic dehydration can last for weeks, yeah. especially in this weather, right? So taking the time to think about okay what did i just do to myself and how do i now reverse or help minimize the damage instead of just going out and doing it again the next night yeah i agree um super important to know and just have more awareness of what you're putting in your body and it like you said it might and this this could be a whole nother podcast ellie i love these topics with you is the instant gratification is mm -hmm. you feel good um, and you taste good for that 20 minutes you're eating it. But think of the long-term damage yeah. that that cheeseburger and milkshake is oh, going yeah. to do to your body over the next three, four days. 
Oh, we could definitely talk about that. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Well, that's another whole other podcast and I'm sure we'll get into <laughs> it with you. Um, but I think we'll wrap it up there for today. I know that there's been tons of great information and, and this is one of our most beneficial podcast topics I think we've had in a couple of weeks. So thank you so much for making yourself available today, Ellie. Um, I, I look forward to having you on My pleasure. in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. And if anyone's got questions, feel free to reach out to me, Ellie at evolutionwellness.ca or through my student email too. Yeah. Awesome. We'll throw your email at the bottom okay. of the YouTube link here and people will be able to free to reach out for you. Sure. Sounds good. Hey, okay. Thanks, Layton. Awesome. Have thanks for joining day. me today. YouTube. I uh, will talk to you later, Ellie. Have a good one. Okay. Bye-bye. You too.